0: Psalm 69, 15 to 18. Do not let the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me, redeem me, Set me free because of my enemies. The Word of God. God. You may be seated. Do you have any enemies? Think about it for a moment. The Oxford Dictionary defines an enemy as a person, quote, who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Maybe you can't think today of anyone who is actively opposed or hostile to you personally. And if not, that's wonderful. Praise God. Some of you are imagining going to a Thanksgiving dinner with some people that might be actively opposed um, to you what does it mean to have an enemy if you don't, if you can't think of an enemy someone opposed to you personally perhaps we need to step back for a minute what do you stand for that you feel like others are actively working against how do you feel about those others do you pray for them If you do pray for them, how do you pray for them? In 2009, Jaron and the long road to love released a country song called Pray For You. These are the lyrics. I haven't been to church since I don't remember when. Things were going great till they fell apart again. So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do. He said, you can't go hating others who have done wrong to you. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job, and you just pray for them. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you." (laughs) This song fits very well with a particular type of psalms that you may be surprised to find is in your Bible. They're called taunt psalms, cursing psalms, or vengeance psalms. And we're going to take a look at three of those psalms today. First, Psalms 109. In Psalm 109, David describes his enemies, and then he says he's praying for them. In verse 4, Psalms 109, verse 4, he says, In return for my love, they accuse me even while I make prayer for them. Now, some, some Bible versions have the next part as David's prayer, and other Bible versions have the next part as David quoting the prayer of his enemies. Perhaps those translations aren't too comfortable with the idea that this is David's prayer, because this is what the prayer says. 109 verse 6, they say, appoint a wicked man against him, let an accuser stand on his right. Note in the NRSV, there's a footnote saying that they say is not in the Hebrew. So this is quoting David. But again, translations are divided about whether this is David's prayer or David is quoting the prayers of his enemies for him. Because this is what the prayer says. The prayer prays that the person being prayed for would be accused and found guilty, that his days would be few, that another person would take his position, his job, that his children would be fatherless and his wife a widow, that his children would be beggars, that all his property would be taken by creditors and strangers, and his children's children would be cut off not to continue his name The person prays that his father's and mother's sins would not be forgiven and he would be cursed with the curses he gave other people. Quite a prayer. Now, whether this is David quoting his enemy's prayer for him or this is his own prayer for his enemies, guess what? In the end, it doesn't matter. Why? Because the very next verse, Psalms 109 verse 20, David says, no one disagrees with that, David says, May that be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Either way, David claims the prayer against his enemies. We don't know the history behind Psalms 109, our first vengeance psalm t- today, but our second vengeance song, and again, we're in the book of Psalms, this is uh, Israel's songbook. These are Hebrew songs that were collected and kept and sung in worship. We don't know the history for Psalms 109, but our second Vengeance Psalm, Psalms 52, it has a superscript. That's a a line that comes right before the psalm that has been passed on um, in the text, as part of the text for generations. And the line says, a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. So the scribes are giving us some background information for how this psalm was written. And the background story to this psalm is 1 Samuel 21 and 22. And if you don't remember the story, I'm going to give you a reminder, some background about what's going on in this story before we look at the psalm. In 1 Samuel 21 and 22, David, who's been anointed to be the future king, um, but secretly, David is running from King Saul, and he was warned by his friend, Prince Jonathan, who's King Saul's son. He's been warned by Jonathan that Saul wants to kill him. So David runs. He runs alone to a town called Nob, and he, the, he finds the first person he can think of to help the local clergy, the priest. Ahimelech but David does not tell Ahimelech what's really going on and I think that's a sad part of this story it might have had a different ending um, if David had told him but David doesn't tell him he lies David tells the priest he's on a secret mission for the king in other words Saul sent me here Ahimelech said okay great Saul sent you here I'm gonna help you I'm gonna give you bread and a sword guess what sword I'm gonna give you Goliath's sword Some of you know the story. Goliath, that giant that David had fought against and had taken the sword. The sword was in a special place and David is taking the sword, the bread. He escapes and finally he, he lands in some caves where he's hiding out and he gathers an army of 400 people. Everything would have gone smoothly, perhaps, except there was an eavesdropper Bible says that Doeg, an Edomite, the head of Saul's herdsmen, overheard the conversation between Ahimelech and David. So when Saul found out David had escaped and was amassing an army to come against him, he offered his servants fields, vineyards, army positions, in other words, rewards, If anyone could give him any information about David and where he was. And guess who spoke up? Doeg. Doeg. He said, oh yeah, David, I saw him. He went to priest Ahimelech. And priest Ahimelech prayed, gave him food, Goliath's sword. Now, it doesn't say that um, Doeg told Saul what David had told Ahimelech. We don't know that piece. But I'm guessing that Doeg just told Saul that Ahimelech supported David. And so Saul is then assuming that Ahimelech was in on this whole plan from the beginning. So he's furious. He calls Ahimelech and all the priests of Nob, which is most all of Ahimelech's family, to see Saul. And they go, because they're not expecting anything. They're not suspecting anything. They were giving David what he needed for his mission for the king. But Saul was so furious and angry that he commanded his own guards to kill all the priests that had just come to see him. Kill them. And the guards, being aware of what would be right or wrong and that these are innocent people and they're priests no less, devoted to God, the guards refused. They weren't gonna kill the priests, they were gonna kill unarmed priests. And so Saul turns to Doag, the man who had told him, about the situation, and he says, you kill them. And the Bible says Doeg killed 85 priests that day. And then, not only that, he goes to Nob, their hometown, and he kills their families, everyone. And not only that, the Bible says he even killed oxen, donkeys, and sheep, and only one son of Himelech escapes and comes and tells David, and that's when David writes his vengeance psalm. Get a little bit of the background here for Psalm 52. How would you describe Doag? David sings that Doag's tongue is like a sharp razor, that Doag loves evil, that he loves lying, that he loves words that destroy. He says, Doag is a man who trusts in riches. Remember the reward? And then how does David pray for Doag? Psalm 52 verse five says, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Is it really okay to pray this way? Like David about Doag? Perhaps the deeper question is can God handle our hatred? A long time ago, I met a woman um, going through a nasty divorce and there were young children involved in the whole process, a custody battle. And the lady said she stopped believing in God because he wasn't answering her prayers. And so I asked her, well, what are you praying? And she said she's praying for her ex-husband. She's praying that he would be hit by a bus or otherwise disappear from their lives so he wouldn't be able to take their children. That hadn't happened, so she believed that God was not hearing her prayers. How does God handle these types of prayers? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Have you been tempted to pray a prayer like that? Like David? The fact that these psalms are in Israel's songbook, can you imagine our youth coming up to sing one of these as a worship song? I think most of us would be very uncomfortable with that. But the fact that these are worship songs in Israel's collection of songs means that God takes these feelings seriously. God takes them seriously. In a book called The Message of the Psalms, on page 77, Walter Brueggemann writes this. It's an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God knowing they will be taken seriously. They will be taken seriously. In our third and final vengeance psalm today, Psalm 69, David is in a serious mess. He starts the song saying, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And then David describes his enemies. They hate him for no good reason. There are more of them than hairs on his head. They're strong. They bring false accusations against him. They even inspire drunk people to sing against him. Can you imagine that? David tells God exactly how he feels about his enemies. In verses 22 to 28, he prays for them. Again, he prays that they'll get what they deserve, that they'll be caught in their own trap, that they'll be blinded, that God's anger would be poured out on them, that their houses would be empty, that they would not repent. Doesn't this sound a little bit like Jonah and Nineveh? Praying that they would not repent. His strongest language is in 69 verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. In everyday language, David prays that they go to hell. Isn't that what he said? Blotted out, not counted against the, among the righteous. But this is the amazing part about God. God is big enough to handle David's hatred. David's song, as angry and vengeful as parts of it are, David's song ends up in the hymnal, in the collection. Not only that, but God sings David's song. Here's the catch though. God sings the song and transforms it. God sings the song and transposes it. God sings the song and takes it in a different direction and changes it to a different key. Perhaps you'll recognize the song if I share some more lines from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 verse eight and nine says, I have become a stranger to my kindred, an alien to my mother's children. It is zeal for your house that has consumed me. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Do you remember anyone else singing this song? Jesus sang this song. John 7 verse 5 says that even his brothers didn't believe in him, his kindred, his mother's children. In John 2 verse 17, the disciples heard Jesus singing this song and they quote that he said, zeal for your house will consume me as he drove the money changers out of the temple. Paul remembers Jesus singing the song in Romans 15, verse 3, when he says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, quote, Psalm 69, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me, on the cross. As Jesus hangs on that cross, His heart is broken, and he has no comforters, and he's given sour wine to drink, and he's singing Psalm 69. Psalm 69, 20 and verse 21 says, Insults have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, and there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Jesus is singing Psalm 69 with all he has But Jesus transforms the song because guess what? In this moment where the next thing is supposed to be cursing his enemies, if he had continued singing Psalm 69 as it were, the next thing should come all of David's curses for the people that put him on that cross. But guess what? Instead of cursing his enemies, Jesus takes David's hate onto himself. Instead of singing, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, let them not be enrolled among the righteous, Jesus sings these words. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. In that moment, Jesus takes the song and he transforms it. And Jesus sings that song for us too, because we don't know what we're doing, friends. It's us that need that forgiveness. When we were the enemies, Jesus takes the song, and instead of praying to blot us out of the book of the living, he sings, forgive them, forgive us, for they don't know what they're doing. Scripture says, while we were Christ's enemies, he gave his life for us. Romans 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here the author is quoting from Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. Vengeance is defined as the infliction of injury, harm, humiliation, or the like on a person by another who has been harmed by that person. Here's how we normally read this text. Don't hurt the people who hurt you because guess what? One day God's going to get them. Right? That's how we usually read this text. Leave it alone. God's got it covered. And in that assumption, we're praying that they go to hell, are we not? Here's another way of understanding that verse in light of this text, in light of the cross. In light of the cross, what God is saying when he says vengeance is mine, it means I take the anger, I take the hatred, I take the vengeance onto myself. I take your guilt, I take your punishment, I take your separation from God, I take your death so you can have life. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I'm taking it onto myself. I take your enemy's guilt, their punishment, their separation from God, their death, so if God takes on our enemy's debt, what's our role? Romans 12, verse 20 goes on. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heat burning coals on their heads. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God can handle our anger and our hate. And he wants us, God wants us to give it to God. Why? Because when we give it to God, when we're honest to God about it, then God can take it and transform it and transform us to be people that really can respond to Jesus' invitation. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, it's hard to talk about enemies right now with some really awful things going on in the world. I can't think of enemies today without thinking about what's happening in Ukraine. What does it mean to love your enemies when you are one of eight million Ukrainians internally displaced or another eight million who have fled the country? What does it mean to love your enemies? What does it mean, on the other hand, when you're a mother in Russia who has lost a son? What does it mean to love your enemies? I can't help but think of Gaza today and Israel What does it mean to love your enemies when you've witnessed loved ones die on October 7? Or when your family members still, weeks later, are being held hostage and you don't know if they're dead or alive? What does it look like to love your enemies? What does it mean to love your enemies when your child has been wounded by airstrikes? When your whole family has been destroyed? What does it look like to love your enemies when you're one of the doctors in the hospital? watching over the neonatal intensive care unit, knowing that unless you get more fuel to generate electricity, more babies, more patients will die. What does it mean to love your enemies? The rabbi Jesus says, love your enemies. Since 1988, Rabbis for Human Rights an Israeli organization has been working to articulate a vision of justice rooted in Jewish tradition and acting to prevent human rights violations in Israel and in the occupied territories. This is Rabbi Eric Asherman. And for him, loving his enemies looks like helping protect Palestinian olive farmers from rising violence in the West Bank. The war came at harvest time. And this article said that where there maybe were three incidents of violence a day, Um, For Palestinian farmers that are trying to harvest their olives on the olive trees, um, now there's about seven instances of violence a day. And the rabbi stands guard so that these families can harvest their olives, their livelihood, so that they'll have what they need for this next season to eat. The rabbi stands guard. Danny Brodsky, a rabbis for human rights director for the occupied Palestinian territories, says this, quote, We pray for peace and we hope things will get better and we're willing to put the work in. And he's wearing a padded lacrosse glove to soften blows if he's attacked. I think the rabbi Jesus would be proud. We pray for peace. Perhaps the first step to loving our enemies is to start praying for them. Maybe at first our prayers for them will sound a bit like Jaron's song or the divorced lady's song for her ex-husband. Or maybe our prayers will sound a bit like David's song in Psalm 69 where he prays that they go to hell. God can handle that. But as we keep praying for them, as we keep bringing them before Jesus, God may just take our hate and give us the love that Jesus had. The love that turns curses into blessings. The love that says, I will take the vengeance onto myself. The love that prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But the truth is, when we didn't know what we were doing, God forgave us.